Um, I'm excited to see the young people who are going to come and transform the industry. I'm excited about the young people who are going to come in and do these things around city building, around the environment. I, I just can't wait to see what our industry can contribute to these very real problems and very real opportunities. And I'm going to be around for that. Welcome to the A Fire Podcast, now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. What happens when the workforce no longer wants to work where and when you want them to? What happens when the skills needed today are different from those yesterday? What happens when the workforce doesn't want to work? We are really there now, actually, and uh, we are asking those questions. This pandemic has changed the world and the repercussions will linger long after the virus recedes. Therefore, I thought it might make sense for us to talk culture and human capital with a real expert who's joining us today, Matt Sleppen. He's the founder and managing partner of Terra Search Partners. They're a national executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. And he also hosts my favorite real estate podcast, Leading Voices in Real Estate, where he goes in depth uh, over an extended period of time with, with some really fascinating people uh, to help kind of open up what's going on and what has gone on in our industry. So thank you, Matt, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. Thank you for being a guest on my podcast a couple months ago. That was a great conversation. Well, that was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, 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 you know, it was kind of like, wow, I've been listening to this for a while and now I get to be here. It's, it's like that moment. If you ever get on television, you go, I'm on TV. It, it had that same feeling. Well, Matt, every, every recruiter I speak to says that this year is busier than ever. And, and maybe that's hyperbole or, or, or maybe that's actual. Uh, and, and why do you think that might be happening in terms of movement going on, in terms of executive search, in terms of all the different things that are going on? And, and, and how much more of this should we expect? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it's, it is a busy year. So and I, it's anecdotal for me, but I hear it from others and I read it in the headhunter trade press or something like that, that other firms <laughs> outside of real estate are really busy. So I think it's a time of hiring through the economy, particularly at the senior level. Um, I think there's some things going on here. What one is there's some pent up demand for a last year that was slower than normal, although we were probably at average last year. So we were lucky during the pandemic year, but I've heard that others slowed down and then got busy towards the end of the year as, as the pandemic got stabilized, if that's the right word. So there's mm -hmm. pent up demand for last year. I think there's retirements coming. I think there's a lot of people, particularly my age, who are baby boomer generation. They say, hey, we're, we're moving on now. And maybe that was accelerated a little bit by the pandemic. And then I think the thing that I've been saying for 20 years, every time we've talked, Gunner, has been that real estate is an ever-increasingly sophisticated and institutionalizing uh, industry. And with that comes the demand for better staff at higher levels. And we're training people through the industry now to take those places. But I think the demands are ever-increasingly high for having great executive teams. When you're thinking about the skills, I, I, I've often been confused because we, we can see a, a, a kind of 
a, a path where we're needing more and more data skills, we're needing more technology skills in the business that we're doing. And yet the executive track hasn't in, in many cases included that. that. That hasn't been what we've been looking for. Is that changing? Yeah, it sure is. I mean, you have to understand how technology works, particularly if you're the CEO of a company, if you don't understand holistically the drivers of the business and the drivers of your customer and the drivers of how your people are getting their business done. Now, now you have to be all across the board manager, I think, to be really good at this. And it's no longer the world of the deal guy. And real estate for so long, I think maybe we have the overhang of expectation of people who are great in investments know how to run our companies. And we'll talk about culture later, but I think it's the same story in terms of that evolution as well. But having a broad base of understanding of all of the drivers of the business are what's incumbent upon leaders today. I, I And I would argue that the leaders that look more along the lines of what they need in order to operate a business, that those businesses are doing better. I mean, that they're kind of jumping ahead in a lot of ways of the, the more traditional deal shops. Yeah. I, and I'm probably going to quote this. My last podcast was with Jody McLean of, of uh, Eden's. And, you know, she talked about, she talked the, the, in the broad sense about leadership and what drives her and her business and her company. And she came from the transaction side. So she needed the transaction side to be her table stakes, if you will. But then once she got past that to a broader leadership, then it was having the broader view, having a mission view, having a culture view, having a purpose view, but still knowing how to do really good deals. <laughs> so you kind of need both. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, you don't want people who can't do good deals. I mean, you certainly need that. Well, when you think about what we've gone through over the last 18 months, uh, operationally, everything has had to change, or we've all had to adapt and had to adjust. Certainly the association business, we've had to do that. But what has it been like recruiting such a person business? It's such a kind of hand-holding kind of business where you're getting the feel for people. How has that been in a time of, of Zoom calls? And Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, first of all, it's been a really easy adjustment because for recruiters, it's been a no adjustment because we've been doing video interviews for 20 years. Now, video interviews, when they started 20 years ago, were horrendous and expensive. So I remember having to go to a Kinko's, if you remember that name, to a room for 500 bucks an hour and to do a 90-minute interview, I was charging my client $750. And I just will never forget the one person I interviewed and, and he was depixelating through the entire conversation. It was for $750. It was just bizarre. Um, but now we do it every day. And so we're so used to having conversations this way. And particularly for, you know, re recruiters, it's we can leverage our time better. And there are skills in how to leverage out a comfortable call versus, hey, let me get right down to it. If you get right down to it, Zoom's really bad if it encourages you to get, hey, let's just get to the point here. Well, when you're interviewing someone about, you know, what, who they are and what they're all about, it's all about the white spaces, not all about, hey, let me get down to the, the brass tacks of the conversation about who you are. It just doesn't work. But if yeah. you have the skills to know how to lay out with someone, then uh, Zoom's almost as good as in person. Again, it's those spaces in between. That, oh, when I walk from the elevator to my office, I just heard 
the, the doofus comments or whatever it was. So how do you get that through the interview? But we're, we're able to do that. So that's not an issue. It's harder for our clients to deal with that. And at the end of the day, for us in search, the penultimate interview is normally not an interview, but it's a re interactive meeting. And right. I think in most of the cases of our searches over this period of time, they've had those interactive meetings in person. And that's not one-on-one, -on -one. that's one-on-three or something. And it's, again, not an interview, which is easy, but it's mm -hmm. a, let's have a discussion. And that's hard to do on Zoom, as we all know. Absolutely. Well, there's, there's also these touch points that I, that I think of when I think of meetings and when I think of when we're trying to figure out if we can trust someone and everyone else that are um, ceremony that have been taken away from us. It's almost as if there are all these, these elements that we do that are the tea ceremony of American business that we're not able to do, um, forcing us to, forcing me anyway, I, I keep going, well, I can't do that. So what does that mean? What is it that I'm actually trying to accomplish and how do I, how do I make that happen uh, without the ceremony? It, I'll, I'll tell you a story about one of those tea ceremonies. It's interesting. I was in New York and I met with a client and we were in their boardroom and we had done a video interview with their board or their five senior leaders on a Zoom, this is before Zoom, whatever it was, and one of those conference room calls. And um, yeah. But then we did an in-depth meeting together. And it, again, it was those spaces in between the things you have to do where we got to understand their culture, we got to understand their dislocations with each other and their disagreements with each other. And then it was the walk back to the office to the person who I was really going to interact with the most in the search, getting in his room, closing the door, slouching down in the chair by the side of his desk and getting the whole truth of the search that made the search meaningful. Yeah. And that you can't do on Zoom. And you can't establish the relationship that that would cause on a Zoom because you don't know how to do that. You don't bother to that place. And the last comment to this is, I have the benefit of having been in this business for 40 years. So I'm able to kind of quickly establish relationships or I have credibility, or even on Zoom, I could find those white spaces conversations. But for young people in the business, they can't establish relationships this way. And so they have to get back to meeting, forming relationships, being mentored. And those things will happen back in the office, although not five days a week. No, definitely not. Um, oh, it's interesting. I have a couple of young staff members um, that started really just before the pandemic uh, in terms of uh, this association. And we really got to know each other better through and we were doing it through Zoom, obviously. We were doing it through Slack and a really unfortunate name for a business application. Um, but it was interesting in that we became a lot closer. Now, that did not come without effort. There was a lot of work to do that and a lot of you know care that all, all of us had to take in terms of making that happen to get somehow to some proximate. I mean, obviously, this is not for someone who hasn't been hired yet that you can do this. But um, it is interesting to me how... It's actually possible. A lot of people say, well, it's impossible. No, it's possible. It's just really, really hard. And maybe we don't really want to do that. Uh, it's interesting. We, we've brought two people on who I work with directly almost every day since the pandemic started. So we only know each other 
as a, as coworkers through Zoom, and they've been on every in, we do interviews together. And if I'd done the interviews in person or a less uh, robust technology than Zoom, I would have done the interviews alone. And now they're there riding shotgun with me, and they're putting in their ten thousand hours, and I'm being their Yoda of <laughs> their Yoda of interview. But you know, at the end of about a hundred of these, you start to okay, maybe there's some techniques here, and so we become very close through that experience, and and the training's really good. So there's ways to get around it. Uh, well, shift gears a little bit, uh, just because it's an issue that, I, that I, I like talking with you about, because I think it's a complicated one and one that, that you know, takes a lot of sensitivity to figure out or to talk to. Now, just, just as, a, um, as a warning to anyone who's listening to this, it, we are both white guys talking about this. So we're not speaking about this from personal experience, but from personal uh, obligation to uh, address it, understand it. And, and not be making it worse. So in the last year or so, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about racial equity and diversity, and it's become kind of a key issue that is thought about by leaders uh, everywhere. Um, how deep they're going, how shallow they are on it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's there. It's on the agenda. Diversity has to be there. Um, what I'm struck by and, and often frustrated by is... Uh, is the following comment that I get. Okay, we're all in on, the, on diversity. We're, you know, this, this is really important. Um, and we're going to hire as many people as we can who uh, come from different backgrounds uh, that don't all look like me. Okay, that's great. Um, but there's just no talent, no diverse talent out there, or there's very little talent out there. Is that true? It's not true. But it's true in situations. Nothing's black or white. <laughs> Sorry about right. that. Uh, not meant that way. So first of all, if we'd had this discussion before George Floyd, the discussion for diversity was gender diversity. And right. the discussion throughout the real estate business is where are women, we have to find women for senior roles. And that's still an issue and still a question. Uh, and, but getting better. And there have been strong pathways for women in the industry for a long, long time and great success mm -hmm. stories. Um, it's harder for people of color and it's harder for people of, and, and the, um, and the, the, the pathways in the on deck circle for people of color are much narrower. They haven't come into our industry. Uh, hasn't been a welcoming industry. Um, and for those in the industry, I think there's a very bright future for people to have board seats and executive seats if they're really, really talented and they can go places. Mm -hmm. um, and we've done searches where we can find the person of color in certain roles and not in other roles. So just for example, and it's the same, we've had the same gender issues in the past as well. Um, we're doing a CFO search. Uh, for one of our large clients. And we, we have very, very, very few people of color in that particular search. So, and so we're looking at the pipeline and we're just not finding it. I'm working really hard yeah. to find it, but we're not getting there. On another role, we may have half the candidates are people of color, like literally. And so our success rate, depending on the role, depending on the situation, is actually pretty high. So we're placing 30, 40% people of color 
in our searches. So we've had that success, but again, in some roles, lack of pipeline. Is there, um, is there a, a case to be made for examining or re-examining the qualifications that we're looking for or the screens that we're using in order to find people, not to find people that are any less talented, but perhaps to find people that are less conventional in their path? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think screens are one question and there are, for some roles, gosh, we've been counseled like take out requirements of certain degrees and take out requirements of past experience because you're gonna cast a wider, broader net and to leave those things out, which I don't think necessarily serves our clients in most roles. We mm -hmm. need a senior acquisitions person. I, I'm someone from outside of that space that doesn't go work. Right. Um, especially in an industry where long-term relationships are part of what you're buying when you're buying someone who does that. Um, in other roles, you can go much more broadly, you can go outside of the industry and that prior experience can be generalized into the role versus in the acquisitions role, just as the best example for that. Right. Um, the other thing, I just heard this great conversation, was at my ULI council, but a woman named Olivia Johns, Olivia, I hope it's okay if I'm quoting you, who was, the, it was previously at Blackstone, and they did a lot of recruitment, and then they said what we had to do when these people came into the company was we then had to support them to understand what success meant in this environment. And so it wasn't, okay, get, get five people in in this class of associates, but get them in and then have a lunch once a week or twice a week and change the game about how they can have a pathway to success. Yeah. Uh, because they're not starting, people are not necessarily starting at the same place um, in terms of what skill set and perspective and understanding what is required in that particular organization or any of these organizations. So a, it has to happen on many levels. Uh, that, that's an excellent point. It actually takes right into culture and thinking about that, that it, it almost part of what has to happen in these organizations that are making the, the important step of hiring more diverse workforces is that they have to be perhaps more conscious about how they experience the culture and the kind of the unwritten uh, rules of the organization. I, th I think that I think that's true. I but the culture issues and what the c company looks like, feels like, and what the game is for that particular company, those are broader issues. Diversity is just one of the issues that that right. ties into in a large way. Um, but having a company that looks like your customers, that means something. And it's not just because it looks like your customers, but they can understand your customers. They can talk to your customers, they can talk to your investors in a way that's different than the old white guy organizations used to do or still do in the case of many organizations still look that way. Absolutely. So it's not what it looks like, it's what it is and what the meaning of it is. Well, how does someone, okay, I'm a new leader of an organization and I, I realize that what I need is a good culture. Uh, can I go get some culture? What do I have to do in order you know, to get a good culture that makes sense? Yeah, I, I think a couple things. Um, and it's interesting because I almost never ask people what their culture is. I, it's like asking, you know, what's your work ethic like? Or, you know, what, how do you lead? I, I, I don't want to ask that question because the answer I'm going to get comes out of a book, not necessarily out of how they behave in their life. So I'm going to experience that through how they talk about stuff 
rather than what they articulate as how they like to lead is. So that's one thing. So a company talks about its culture. Everyone, every company has kind of highfalutin culture goals. And when they make those statements, they, they all look pretty good. And then maybe half of them are really pretty good, if not great. And maybe half of them are kind of so-so at that stuff and have a long, long learning curve to get through. Um, one thing I think that really matters in an organization is having a mission and purpose that's articulated that is deeper than, hey, let's get bigger and make more money. And again, companies do articulate that, but do they mean that? And how deep does that go? And again, I'll, I'll quote the last two podcasts that I had. One was, again, with Jody, and she just woke up one day. This is in the podcast, just a great conversation. She said, woke up one day, and there was something missing through all these retail transactions we were doing. And I started to realize it was about the communities that we're in. It was about providing community to our but both through our tenants and into our residents. And once she kind of woke up to that thought and then investing that through how the organization worked, then the company changed. And then everyone on board could start to view it through that lens, which is a very real and very human lens. And that lens will drive culture. So I think mission purpose and mission purpose doesn't have to be through solely an illumocenary organization. Right? You could be a retail owner, you could be a multifamily owner. I think you could be in transportation business. And having that behind the business, those organizing principles, I think, is the first driver of culture. Right. And then the second is make it real down through the organization. And one of the places that happens, but not the only place that happens, is you know with a senior HR person who is empowered and has that as a mandate. But don't make it an HR thing. Make it an everybody thing. Yeah. Um, so there's just everywhere you look through the organization, there's places that if you have those drivers and that midterm and long-term view of business versus a more transactional business, then you're going to have an organization that starts to build that. that that's, it's so true. I wonder when you look at, I, I, I love that you mentioned the, the, the official kind of mission statement and whatever else and, and the disconnect between that and the real. I've, I've often thought that part of the problem is the statement itself, at least how it's put together, that it's put together in terms of things that really look good and sound good when it actually comes down to an operational, this is what we're all about. The, the, the side of the desk conversation that, that you described, what, what's really going on? What are we really about? What are we doing? We're about that community. We're going to make that community work. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that anyone that lives in that area is, really is connected to that community. That's more real language. That's not language we put in you know, some sort of official statement that goes in our annual report. Um, but it's how we live. I mean, do you ever find that language is one of those tells in terms of how real is something? Um, I think it is, but it's language and I'll quote two or three different people from my podcast where I get to have these conversations in a deeper way. If someone at the end or the beginning says, hey, here's our mission. It's cool. And they, you know, they, they list those things, but you didn't hear it through the whole conversation invested in everything they talk about of the work they've been doing. Then it's not really real. Again, this is only the executive talking, right? But if you then look back through the conversation with one of those executives and we had it with a guy named Bill Bayless, who's kind of one of the founders of the student housing business, and the, I think the only still public student housing company. But when they invented the company, they invented, 
they invented it for that purpose of having great student living experience as compared to yuck that it always had been. Camden Properties did the same thing. Uh, when the two co-founders put it together, they say, hey, we, we wouldn't be great at where these people live. Now, what does that mean? And then they organize it around that. And then it's so easy because then everything you say, if you talk about your company for an hour, you wind up talking from those passion things and not talking through the growth things. Now, they're alongside each other, but the passion things exist and you organize the principles around that. So it has to be deep and felt. So it's not just the words. It's a consistency and it's throughout what you hear from someone when they talk about what their business is about. It occurs to me that if you do that, everything, nothing is easy in life, but certain things become simpler. At least you know what direction to go. So whether it's how we're going to organize ourselves, how we're going to market ourselves, what kinds of, what's our investor pitch, what, um, you know, what are the things that we do every day? If you have that kind of baseline of this is what we're about, that the answers to those questions, it's no longer even a binary question, uh, answer. It, it, it's, it's neither one or the other. It's this is the one way. You don't even really have to make a decision because you know why you're there. Yeah. And it's interesting. Another one of my podcasts, it was last week, so it isn't out yet, was with um, uh, the, the co-CEOs of and co-founders, not co-founders, the co-CEOs of IEC, Interstate Equities Corporation. So it was uh, Julia Boyd Corso and Marshall Boyd. And they talked about when they went for their capital structure that they didn't want to be syndicators and they didn't want to be one-off programmatic equity people. They actually wanted to have a fund because they wanted to be fiduciaries. And he hammered this point home like two or three times. And then each time he said, we wanted to be a fiduciary. So that drove him to the capital structure and then the cause behaviors that then follow from that. That's really interesting. And he could have chosen a different lane to play in the same business and a different lane would have caused a different kind of culture and organization that's built around that. Based on all the conversations you have with these leaders um, over the years, um, as well as your own work, what, what are you... What are you worried that people are missing, that they're not paying close enough attention to, or they need to spend more time thinking about or working with? Well, one thing comes to mind immediately, and this also comes from my podcast. Uh, August was uh, uh, environmental month for my podcast. So we did two episodes on the environment. And it, there's a statistic that I didn't fully understand. I think I've heard it in meetings, but it didn't resonate with me so deeply. The built environment is responsible for 40% of carbon emissions on the planet. Of that, three quarters are existing buildings and one quarter is new construction and deconstruction of existing buildings. To put that in perspective, all transportation, both both cars and planes and however else we get around, not bicycling though, uh, is 20%. My headline had always been, you know, uh, carbon is because we drive too much and cows fart and belch too much. But it's actually our buildings and that's our industry. So our industry has the opportunity and actually obligation at this point in time to kind of deal with that or else we're in deep Um, doo-doo. So if there's something missing from the industry, it's kind of, let's now just jump into that level of responsibility and get that done. And it's not do good. (laughs) <laughs> survival. No. 
And so the next time you put the boiler on the building, like that extra boiler that's going to, you know, be greener in a meaningful way, and you may not get paid for it right away. And hopefully the brokers will know when you go to sell the building that it's worth that you did that. The whole ecosystem has to change to put a value on that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I think to a certain extent, the the institutional real estate industry, I think, has has been a leader in this area. We have made great progress in the last 10, 20 years, but it's not enough, nowhere near enough. And we have a long way still to go. Some sometimes. So some investors look at it hard. Some brokers look at it hard. Some buyers look at it hard. Some fiduciaries look at it hard and others don't. Right. And hopefully we're going to get paid for doing it the right way. But, yeah. but that, that's going to matter. So I guess that's the one thing that jumps to my mind. And that may also drive what the business looks like over the next 10, 15, 20 years because there's going to be a big spend there, I think. I think there's going to be a big spend, but I also think that there's the, the risk levels have, are, are leaping upward. If you think about uh, all the growth happening in the Sun Belt in this country and yet all of the global warming impact in the Sun Belt um, from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast, um, I'm concerned about that. I think, and a lot of others are, and they're trying to figure out how to invest around that, how to mitigate that risk. But it's it's significant. It's bigger than we can comprehend yet. It's our industry. Our industry built the sprawl that created some of these problems, or a lot of these problems. Yep. And it wasn't our fault for building the sprawl, but we were the ones who built it. So our yep. industry has a huge impact. And I think that's one of the most exciting parts of our industry, particularly for young people coming into the business, that in multiple ways they'll make a difference there. And it's a, you know, they'll be making our cities because our cities are going to change. And COVID accelerates a lot of trends, not just around climate. And on top of that, we've got we've got a kind of a global community. So we do interact with each other a lot. Even if we're very local, we're dealing with global capital, sharing lessons learned across the globe. Europe has actually obviously been a real leader on this. Um, and I think it, it's one of those things where we can actually answer some of these questions and come up with things that are better for us as well as an industry uh, that, uh, to your point that, you know, we get paid for. There's a way to do that. Um, I, I'm not the one who knows that, but there is. I believe that there is. Um, and uh, a lot of folks, a lot of other folks believe it as well. So I think there's, there's a lot we can do. And it's more us than it is government. I think we tend to think this is something the government has to fix. And I think this is something that, well, the government has a part, but we have to, we have a part as well, pretty big one. Oh, we had the head of real estate from Google on the podcast for my 100th episode, which was really fun. And they're building three humongous projects in Silicon Valley, right, de novo. And in those three projects, they have the opportunity to do it right. Government has something to do with this, but not a whole lot. They could lead the way and then go around the world to find the best practices of building materials, technology, streetscapes. You know, what's the coolest thing anywhere in the globe? Let's do that if it makes good sense here. Let's go find out what that is. Companies like that that are doing things, that they like to replicate things, of course. They'll do the same thing in one place that they did elsewhere. Um, but, you know, how much can a government do? You know, you can, you can nudge people along with some tax benefits. You can, you can regulate or you can try to do it. It's the law. You have to go there. But that's a tough thing to implement, a tough thing to actually make it work since, you know, we still are in a democratic uh, government. Um, and it, you know, it's hard to enforce. So it, it, you know, there's always ways around it. People always find ways around things. And um, that, that's probably not the best way to uh, actually solve problems is just rely on that. Certainly it can help, but it's not the only way. 
Yeah, and the question, you know, also for our industry is how policy matters a lot to our industry. Tax policy does. We talk about that a lot. And, Absolutely. But, it, you know, think about building, building codes, NIMBYism. Um, our cities could be rebuilt. We're going to rebuild our cities. What's, what's that going to look like? And is it done in a proactive, forward-looking way, both in terms of environment, in terms of density, in terms of what can be done? And the government officials are far behind what our best minds can do. So our industry are leaders. Big job. So uh, given all that, what are you most excited about happening in real estate in the next, say, 10 years? Um, I'm excited to see the young people are going to come and transform the industry. I'm excited about the young people who are going to come in and do these things around city building, around the environment. I, I just can't wait to see what our industry can contribute to these very real problems and very real opportunities. And I'm going to be around for that. So, and I'm going to help companies figure that stuff out. And um, that's really delightful. That is delightful. No pressure, those of you who are of the younger generation listening to this, uh, but you are going to save the world. So thank you. I'm very grateful for that. Um, well, uh, we've run to the end of our time here. So uh, I want to make sure to thank you, Matt, for your insight and your ideas. And I encourage everyone within uh, listening distance of this podcast to tune in to uh, Leading Voices of Real Estate and to uh, make sure you listen to a few, uh, especially over the last couple of months. And um, I think that's about it. So thank you so much, Matt, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Gunnar, this was delightful. Thank you. Always. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice to this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire Podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.